Please open your Bibles to John chapter 2. You'll find the notes of this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. John chapter 2. I'd like to begin our time this morning by reading verses 13 to 22, and then having a word of prayer. <clears throat> John chapter 2, 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Lord God, help us, give us the grace to see the glory in your son as he cleanses your temple, as he fights for your holiness. Help us to receive his rebuke. Help us to see his glory in this this sign pointing to his identity, your greatness. Lord God, let us be like the disciples who hear and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. This is, by some degrees, a very familiar passage. The other Gospels contain accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple, and so the first thing we've got to clarify, your first blank here, Jesus cleanses the temple. John's account is separate from the other Gospels' account. Separate. Jesus apparently did this twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. If you remember our study through Luke, Luke's timing is crystal clear. Jesus cleanses the temple after the triumphal entry a week before his death. John's timing here is pretty clear as well. Our last passage after the wedding at Cana, verse 12, after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Well, the most natural way of reading this is what interrupted them? Why did they only stay for a few days? We know from the other Gospels, Jesus and his mother and his brothers actually spent much time relocated to Capernaum. Well, presumably, they only stayed there for a few days because the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And so what we learn then is this account is a standalone, unique account, even as it shares similarities with Jesus cleansing of the temple at the end of his earthly ministry. So we're going to study this on John's, John's terms, looking at what he's pointing to and understanding the significance of it. So let's begin. Jesus cleanses the temple, verses 13 to 17. 
The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So let's look at this in three points, the context, the event, and its meaning. First, John gives us the context. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And this begins a section in John's gospel where Jesus interacts with major feasts in the Jewish religion. These are, these are feasts prescribed by the law of Moses. You will remember, in fact, there's a connection already to what John the Baptist has said. How did John the Baptist identify Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At what feast do you offer up a lamb as a symbolic remembrance of God's judgment passing over at the Exodus? It's the Passover. So Jesus, our Passover lamb, is going to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's the context. Um, The Passover itself commemorates God's mercy and his deliverance. In the various accounts in the Old Testament that speak of the significance of the Passover celebration, it's linked with both God's judgment passing over and the Exodus as well, God's mercy and his deliverance. And according to Deuteronomy 16, it's one of the three required feasts held in Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 16, 16, three times a year, All your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And Passover kicks off, begins the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the law prescribed that every able-bodied male three times a year trekked to Jerusalem. So you can imagine just how busy, full, swollen the city is with people, how full the temple must be. Jesus, being a faithful Jew under the law, goes up to Jerusalem. Um, The event then, what happens? First, we notice his provocation. His provocation. The first sign that Jesus did was one of compassion and kindness, honoring his mother, honoring marriage, who was done in his hometown. It was done without drawing much attention to himself. Only the servants and his disciples saw, beheld his glory, This is now going to be Jesus' public um, sign and miracle. This is going to be Jesus getting on the public stage and grabbing the public attention in a shocking way. And it begins with him being provoked, him being driven to anger. If the first sign is a sign of compassion, kindness, this is a sign of his anger and judgment, a taste of what is to come at his second coming. He is sorely provoked. What is it that provokes him? Animals and money changers in the temple. And so we got to pause and consider what is it about this that he finds offensive? And this is where we're going to let John point us to the answer. Because the other gospels, in the second event, the second cleansing, Jesus speaks of thieves and robbers. Here, there's no mention of that. Jesus Rebuke is plain. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So so the point is this. 
Jesus is not fundamentally opposed, not against commerce and trade as such. In a very real sense, the money changers and those selling animals are providing a real value and service. I mean, imagine if you've got a trek 100, 150 miles, what would be easier to bring your lamb with you and risk it being judged not clean enough, not spotless enough, or to travel without the lamb and buy one upon your arrival? I'd certainly pick the latter option. That'd be a lot simpler. So it makes sense, and it provides a real service to the people that there are animals present to be purchased. Second, Jews from all over, not just Israel, but all over the the Mediterranean would come. We we see this in Acts 2 at Pentecost, where Jews from all these nations are coming in. They would be bringing different currency, and they got to pay the temple tax. And again, a money changer, someone who can transfer that money all in one location, provides a real service. This is a real benefit. There's nothing inherently immoral about these activities. Jesus' rebuke is not against them as such. And I I make this point because commentators can suggest all sorts of things. He's against capitalistic structures. No, that's that's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. Uh, Some have also suggested that because it's likely where they were setting up shop was in the court of the Gentiles, this is some implied slight on them. But John doesn't mention that. Jesus' rebuke is simply, you've traded one function for another. This is my father's house, and you've turned it into a place of trade. So I would suggest to you that the rebuke, what's making him angry, is simply their failure to treat his father's house as holy. Their failure to treat his father's house as holy. What they're doing in that location, according to John 2, is fine. There's no complaint about what they're doing. Don't do that here. That's not the place for this. This is my father's house. It's not portrayed. That, that's the rebuke. And he is, he is provoked and angry. What, what he does is violent. What he does is, is forceful. Next we see his anger. His anger. He forcibly drove them all out of the temple. Now, even in his anger, there's self-control. He's deliberate. He he doesn't fly off the handle into a rage. He deliberately makes a whip, which had to take some time, presumably buying some or picking up some of the string that would be used for, for the animals, and he deliberately fashions a whip. And what does he do with it? He forcibly expelled them all. Notice the emphasis here, and this is what is so remarkable. Can you... Imagine how many people would likely have been here. The the temple and this outer courts are so large that in Acts 5, the entire church, 5,000 or so people, could meet in Solomon's porch, one of the outer courts of the temple. And on this feast day, or this time approaching the feast, Jerusalem would have double, triple the population that it normally had. This would have been swamped. It's absolutely jaw-dropping what Jesus is able to do. One man with a whip clears the entire location. John doesn't explain how Jesus does this. We're left to just wonder, is it miraculous power? Is it the force of his word which cannot be resisted? What accounts for this? But he, the text is clear. He drove them all out. 
He cleanses it entirely. What he sets about to do, he does completely. He drove out the animals and overturned the tables. He's purifying the temple, which is almost reminiscent of the, the dedication of Solomon's temple. If you remember after Solomon prays in 2 Chronicles, God's glory descends. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. God's glory settled in Solomon's temple, and it drove everybody out. Something similar thematically is happening here. The Son of God has come to his Father's house, and he's driving out what should not be there. He's driving out what should not be there. And then he gets his rebuke. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, Zechariah 14, if you were here when we studied through Zechariah, gives us some hint that this is inappropriate. They should have known this. If you're trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, they could argue something like, well, people need this service, and it's certainly more convenient if we bring it right here. So what's the harm? Well, Zechariah 14 says this. Speaking of the future coming time of the Messiah, also possibly prophetically anticipating this, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So again, it's not that what they're doing doesn't serve a valid purpose. I'm sure the travelers were thankful for the money changers and thankful for the those selling animals. Um, I, I'm sure that that was a real value. The problem is not in God's house. They're, they're sacrificing um, pragmatics, utilitarianism, ease of function, and they're losing sight of the holiness of God with whom they have to do, which is ironic considering that's one of the major points of the Passover. Turn to Exodus, um, turn to Exodus chapter 12. One of the primary purposes of the feast of Passover is to highlight for the people the holiness of God. Now, the whole temple system is meant to highlight the holiness of God. The temple's all about you can come this far no further, and then you got to do some more washings, and you can come a little closer. It's, it's this concentric um, set of spheres. We've got the Holy of Holies in the very dead center where the high priest only one day of the year goes in. Then you've got the holy place outside of that where the Priests serve, but no one else. And you got the court of the men, then you got the court of the women and the children, then you got the court of the Gentiles. And so the entire setup of the temple system is God is holy, and you don't just waltz in. You remember who it is you're dealing with. Well, that's just normal. The feast of Passover is intensifying that. Let's let's read. Let's read Exodus chapter 12. Let's see if we can see that here. In the passage, pick it up in verse 7. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they shall eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened around your Fastened your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. 
And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses that you, where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This shall be for you a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So leaven, a picture of sin, is scoured through the house, removed, and you're actually going to put people to death. When you read cut off from the people, that means executed. Those who eat leaven, highlighting the holiness and the sacredness of the Lord God. On the first day, verse 16, you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. So this entire week-long feast is set aside by super, supreme, extra holy, holy days. That's, that's what marks this feast. You get every little bit of leaven out of your house. You begin and end with a solemn assembly. So the Passover of all events should be highlighting the holiness of God. And, and for, for ease... For economy, for pragmatics, and I'm, I'm sure a number of good excuses to their eyes, to theirs, I mean, the people have lost sight of the holiness of God, and it's become business. It's become business. Reminded me of a comic strip I saw once. It's showing a man in a church bookstore, and all the books and everything's tossed everywhere, and his wife says, Bob, what are you doing? And he says, well, I asked myself, what would Jesus do? Oh, come on. But it does raise a question. If Jesus is angry about them selling goods in the temple, was our bake sale last Sunday valid? <laughs> no, it, no, I'll, I'll make that. I, I think it was. I think it was. But something to consider, just because it's useful and it serves a real function and it's doing something good, could the argument be made, well, don't do it here, don't do it now? I, I don't think that applies, and as we get towards the end of our message this morning, I'll try to explain why, but it's worth considering. The issue isn't here that they're doing something fundamentally wicked and corrupt. The issue is they're, they're altering the function of this holy place, this holy temple for the worship of God, simply for their own convenience and their own purposes. They've forgotten how holy the Lord their God is with whom they have to do. So then we get the meaning. In, in both of the lobes of this text, Jesus says, does something or says something. And then we're told the significance. Here, we get the significance in his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, I think we should turn to Psalm 69 where this is found and take a look at it. Because there's a problem or difficulty for us to consider. And the problem or difficulty is this. How is it legitimate to apply Psalm 69 to Jesus? Which John clearly does. Psalm 69 is quoted one, two, three, four, five times in the New Testament. It's quoted later in John as well. And so we've got to ask ourselves, is this a messianic psalm? If so, how do we deal with John's citation. of Now, in verse 9, you'll see the quotation. For zeal for your house has consumed me. 
and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, the reason why I say it's difficult is go back to verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. John will quote that in John 15.25, applying it to Jesus. In fact, actually saying, and I quote, This happened that the word of the Lord is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. And then verse 5 gets to the, the problem, potential problem. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. So how can this be a messianic psalm when the author is confessing wrongs and folly? In fact, if you look at the psalm title, it's the psalm of David. And so one of the things we need to wrestle with is when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, on what basis is it quoting it? Is it valid to quote this? How, how, can, this, how can verse 9 of Psalm 69 be speaking of Jesus? And I don't think any of us here would want to think that verse 5 is speaking of Jesus. Well, I, I think there's an explanation, and I think it's tied up in the Davidic authorship of the psalm. One of the things the New Testament makes clear is that we should expect great David's greater son to emulate, to exemplify many of the attitudes of his great, 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 great grandfather. And many of the events in David's life set up events in Jesus' life. And so I think the rationale is this. If David, who was sinful, had such zeal for God's house, is it not Obvious, does it not make perfect sense that his, his descendant who comes from his body, his greater son, also has the same zeal? Of course, the coming Davidite would have David's zeal for his father's house. I think that's the rationale and how this is cited. Your blanks here. Um, David's greater son had the same zeal for God's house. That's, I think, the aha that his disciples are having. They're recognizing in his zeal the zeal of David. Interestingly, and I don't have time to unpack this, that this temple in this act, I believe, received greater glory than Solomon's. Haggai 2.9, if you turn there, uh, they're, they're setting the foundation of the new temple, and it's pathetic compared to Solomon's. Some of them are old enough there to remember Solomon's. And Haggai encourages them in Haggai 2.9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And since this house was taken apart stone by stone around 70 AD, I think this is where it happened. I think when the Son of God came to his Father's house, when his zeal, which can be translated as anger, drove out what was unclean, this temple received a greater glory than even Solomon's. But the last point to consider is probably the most striking Again, Mary suggests Jesus do something, and he, he tells her, corrects her, my hour has not yet come. Jesus will determine when he takes the center stage. Jesus will determine, as he's concerned with his father's interest and purpose, when he will draw attention to himself. And it's not going to be at this wedding. It'll be here in the temple. It's striking that when Israel's Messiah comes, he begins not by fighting their enemies, but by fighting them. 
what, what, what did Israel expect the Messiah to do? Come, throw off the Romans. Come, fight our enemies for us. When the reality is, the first public act of Jesus, after he's been anointed, is he strives against his own people in his father's house. The Messiah fought against them to purify their worship. That's where he begins. Now, this is nothing new in the Bible. What's the first thing that takes place when, the, when Israel is about to begin the conquest of Canaan? They purify themselves. They camp across the Jordan, and, and they're required to circumcise the males because they'd forgotten to do it. God's not going to fight for them while they're unholy. God's not going to make them victorious while they're unfaithful. And then Jericho's a success, but they go and fight at Ai, and they fail again. Why? There's sin in the camp. The Messiah will ultimately, I believe, come and fight for Israel, but first he's going to purify them. But this is, I think, what shook up the Jews of Jesus' day. They were expecting the Messiah to come and in some, some sense pat them on the back, thank them for holding the fort, and say, I got it from here, and go destroy their enemies. What the Messiah does in his first public event is indict their worship, indict their lack of treating God as holy. And he drives them out with a whip. That had to be shocking to the Jews of Jesus' day. Let's see how they respond and what Jesus has to say. So the first point, Jesus cleanses the temple. But in the second section, Jesus replaces the temple. Jesus replaces the temple back in John 2. So the Jews, and by which I think we're to take the, the leading Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the temple rulers, they come and they demand a sign from Jesus. This is, again, perfectly in step with what they do in chapter 1, right? John the Baptist, there's words going around. God's sent a prophet. He's out in the wilderness. He's baptizing. And so they send some people to investigate. Oh, that's, what's all this? And they're, they're not interested in the rightness or wrongness of John the Baptist's baptism. What, what do they want to know? Who do you think you are? What's your warrant? Why are you doing this? We run religious activities here. Explain yourself. Well, that's the same thing they do here. Jesus has just rebuked the temple worship system. He said, in effect, you all have turned my father's house into a house of trade. How dare you? And then he has forcibly driven them out. No small feat. All sorts of people's livelihood is thrown up. You just picture the money changers trying to pick up their coins off the floor, trying to gather their animals that are running off. I mean, you can imagine the scene, the hubbub created by this. And the Jews neither condemn it nor praise it. They neither say, well done, you're quite right. Thank you. Nor do they say, what are you doing? What, what do they want to know? What's your paperwork for this? They care not about its rightness or wrongness. They care not about its rightness or wrongness. They neither agree or disagree with Jesus' rebuke and charge. What do they want to know? By what authority? They question his authority to act. What, what sign will you show us to back up what you've done? What sign will you show us as a credential that you have the right or the authority to do what you've done? This is, this is, in John's gospel, what they're concerned with. And again and again in John's gospel, the issue of authority and by what right comes up. 
part of the reason these people missed Jesus' glory is they're not even interested in it. They're not asking themselves, could this be the Messiah? Could this act be righteous? They're not, they're not interacting with it on those terms. Let's see some paperwork. Let's see a sign to validate what you're doing. And this is no different than the, the masses of people that follow Jesus across the sea. Remember, he fed the 5,000, and then he goes across the sea, and they come over around. And they say, oh, fancy meeting you here, Jesus. And they say, what, what is the work that God would have us do? And he says, well, believe in the Son of Man. And they say, well, what sign will you show us that we might believe? Hint, hint, that manna thing was good. They're demanding signs. What sign do you show us for these things? They care not about the rightness or wrongness, and they question his authority to act. They question his authority to act. Jesus' response is enigmatic. He speaks over their heads. They misunderstand him. The disciples misunderstand him until much later. Which is to say, I think Jesus is, does not take their challenge terribly seriously. Um, he doesn't believe they're really confused. He does answer them. He answers them in a way that those who have ears to hear will hear. But nobody present, as far as we can tell, understood what he meant. And he makes a bold claim. He says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And this is also one of the ways in which John's gospel fills in the other gospels. In Matthew's gospel, one of the accusations at Jesus' trial and one of the taunts while he's on the cross is this. Matthew 26, 61, they accused him. This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. But of course, Matthew's gospel doesn't record him saying that. But here, for anyone who has Matthew's gospel, John gives us the event where he said that. Um, destroy this temple in the three days, I'll raise it up. Which leads to the Jews' confusion. They, they think he's saying he will destroy it. They, they don't understand him. And again, this, this begins a pattern in John's gospel, people misunderstanding. It'll happen next with Nicodemus. How, how can a man be born a second time and he's already come out of his mother's womb? Or the disciples again and again, or other people, the, the woman at the well, oh, give me this living water, sir. John's gospel repeatedly has Jesus saying things that go over the heads of the people he's, he's with. They say it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And what, what we learn is that Haggai encourages the people when Zerubbabel's temple is built. But in, in Jesus' day, Herod, as, as a way of trying to get credibility as, as with the Jewish people, did a massive rebuilding project of the temple. And that had taken 46 years. And so the people are just flabbergasted. Who, who do you think you are? You think you can destroy this temple and in three days build it up? It took 46 years to build this temple. Went right over their heads. Right over their heads. But we get now finally to understanding. Finally understanding. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, what's the first thing we see here? Much later, his disciples understood and believed. Now, it's interesting what John says. They, right? So, look, look at what he says here. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They didn't just remember and believe what Jesus said. 
what he's saying is they understood how the Bible foretold this. They understood how the Scripture foretold the resurrection of the Messiah. They didn't get that here. It went over their heads as well. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is claiming to be the true temple of God. So we've got to stop and ask, well, what does that mean? And very quickly, very quickly, I'll suggest to you this, that a temple, temple in the Bible, serves two functions. It's the place where man and God meet, and it's the place where if sin needs to be dealt with, it is dealt with. So in that sense, some have described the Garden of Eden as a proto-temple, because God and man meet there, and that's where God slew the animals that made the coverings for the man and the woman. Later, you have the tent of meeting, and what happens? Moses offers sacrifices, and God meets with them face to face, and then God gives them the, the mobile tabernacle code. God is in the midst of his people Israel. The sacrifices are made there. His glory takes up residence. And then in Solomon's temple, his glory we read about descended and drove everyone out. This is where you can meet with God. And it's precisely because God's glory is particularly present there that you have to be very circumspect and careful about how you might approach. Well, here's your blank then. Jesus is where man and God truly meet. We've already read this in the prologue. The word took on flesh, both in his incarnation, where Jesus took upon himself full humanity, but Jesus says plainly, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus is the true temple of God because Jesus is the, the one place where man and God can meet. And Jesus is where sin is truly dealt with. On his body, on the cross, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The irony in Matthew's gospel, while he's on the cross... While he is, in fact, destroying this temple and preparing to raise it up, they mock him. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. That's exactly what he's doing while they mock him. What we learn is, is Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, now Herod's temple, they're all meant to set up and prepare us for the true temple of God, which is Jesus Christ. Which is Jesus Christ. I told you that this section of John's gospel has Jesus replacing, eclipsing, fulfilling numerous things. Well, this is the first clear one. He's speaking, and they don't understand him. It goes over his head, but what he, his claim is, is massive. I'm the true temple. My body is the true temple. I am where you meet with God, and I am where sin is dealt with. And so for us, so many years later, after the resurrection, we need to see and understand this, just as his disciples did a few years later. If you want to meet with God, if you want your sin to be dealt with, look to Jesus and to no other. Look to Jesus and to no other. Um, let me return now, finally, to the question I posed earlier about the, the bake sale last week. Um, it's completely fine. The, the big significant difference is this building is not a temple. It's a rain shelter. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. I'm going beyond John's text, but I think for some point of application, this is worth looking at. So to summarize, the Messiah comes to his people, and he demonstrates first and foremost a zeal and loyalty to his father that 
puts him at odds with his people. He's willing to strive against them and make a whip and drive them out as his loyalty is first and foremost with his father. He will have pure worship. He will not tolerate compromised and defiled worship. So what, what does that mean for us? Well, as Jesus ascends into heaven, the New Testament takes this temple motif and applies it next to the church. Applies it next to the church. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 16. Do you not know that you, and the you there is plural, do you not know that you all are God's temple? And that God's spirit is dwelling in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. What we learn is God is still zealous for his temple. He still takes his holiness very seriously. Now here in the context, the destroying is tied with false teaching and false leadership, people building with wood, hay, and straw. And Paul makes it clear, man, if anyone tries to come in and mess with God's church, God will destroy him. Because the focus of the holiness of God's temple hasn't shifted. What has shifted is a physical building on a piece of land to a holy people. And turn to chapter 6. In chapter 3, the church corporately is a temple. In chapter 6, each and every member of the church individually is a temple. And the same emphasis on holiness, purity, that we see in John 2 is present here. And this application is, you be holy. Right? We'll pick it up in verse 17. Paul here is dealing with people in the church sleeping with prostitutes and writing it off as, well, it's just my body, so what do you do? One of these days I'll be free of my earth suit and then I'll be free of these degrading passions. But until then, what do you do? That seems to be their argument. And he says, he who is joined to the Lord, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Jesus is still greatly concerned that the temple of God be treated as holy. But for us, it means growing and teaching faithfully, healthily. And for each of us individually, it means living a holy life. It has nothing to do with a bake sale out in the foyer and everything to do with the purity of our hearts, the purity of our worship. Because we are the temple of God. And ultimately, this picture of temple moving forward into the book of Revelation, where there is no temple... Because God is with his people. In, in one sense, everywhere is temple. Everywhere God and man are in fellowship. It's not localized. So the Messiah comes. He rebukes his people's worship. He cleanses his people's worship. The, the would-be shepherds of Israel stand by and they just want to, can you validate what you've done? They're not interested in what's right or wrong about it. And Jesus speaking over their heads, but in a way that we can hear, makes it clear he is going to eclipse and replace this temple. It's setting up what he says in John 4 when the woman says, where should we worship, on this hill or on that hill? And he says, well, technically it's the hill in Jerusalem, but an hour is coming and it's now here, it's not going to matter anymore because the true temple of God has come. 
And when Jesus ascended into heaven, his body, the church, remains. And so you and I function as God's temple on earth. You and I, as the church, invite people to meet with God, announce the message that sin has been dealt with, and you and I ought to remember that God would have his temple be holy.